changes we've seen over the last few years has just been how the amount of space at the sort of base of buildings, what would have been the foyer at one point, yeah, those are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and they're becoming almost like hospitality spaces. Maybe as you move up the building, your core office space is getting smaller and smaller, but much, much more of your you know, work is being done in these spaces, which are much more about collaboration or meeting or things of that ilk. Welcome back to the Word Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions of space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and this is episode six of season nine, sponsored by Delta Q. In this episode, I'm joined by Peter Fisher, director at architecture firm Bennett's Associates. To warm up for this episode, Peter starred in a BBC radio special on retrofits, which he gives us a preview to. So naturally, we talk about the benefits of repurposing buildings instead of developing new ones. Peter goes into the benefits of a topic I'm learning more about, using timber in construction to reduce carbon emissions, a topic my friend Benjamin Bach in the Waterloo region of Ontario, Canada leans into, so I bet he's going to love listening to this episode. We go on to discuss why timber construction does not create fire hazards and Peter's views on setting minimum standards for net zero carbon. Of course, Peter being an architect, I had to ask him how he sees offices evolving and whether flexible working is changing how buildings are being designed. Keyword here, hospitality. As always, if you have any questions or feedback or topics you want covered, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker or DM me on LinkedIn. You may have seen our headline sponsor Delta Q just raise 8 million euros to fund their international expansion. Delta Q is the leader in reducing energy consumption and CO2 emissions in the commercial real estate sector. Later in the show, we hear from Delta Q's UK director why this is important for our industry. Without further ado, Jeff, let's kick it. Welcome back to the Work Bull Podcast. I'm your host, Kayla Parker, and we're at MIPM again all season long. Big shout out to Nor Norm Furniture as a Service for making our podcast studio complete and comfortable. And thank you for Cavivio for helping get this furniture from Paris to London. Today, I'm speaking with Peter Fisher, director of Bennett's Associates. Bennett's Associates is one of the UK's leading architecture practices and has achieved world first in sustainability, which is great because we are in the road to zero area at MIPM. Now, Peter joined Bennett's Associates in 2001 and is the driving force behind many pioneering sustainable workplace projects. Having studied both architecture and environmental design, he's fascinated by architecture that straddles the two disciplines. Some key projects have included the remodeling of Hampshire County Council's HQ, the London Borough of Camden Civic Building, and Student Services Center for the University of Cambridge. He's currently overseeing several net zero carbon projects such as Timber Square in Southwark, a 365,000 square foot office campus that addresses both construction and operational carbon emissions. This hybrid timber scheme, the UK's largest by area of CLT, is the first UK project to undertake a design for performance review, leading it to be on track to receive five-star Neighbors UK energy rating once in operation. Peter's taught, lectured, and written widely on the subject of architecture and sustainability, was a design fellow 
at the Department of Architecture in Cambridge for seven years and chairs the Knowledge Quarters Net Zero Carbon Advisory Group. And if you enjoy this episode, as I expect you will, peep the show notes for a link to hear Peter featured on another show nearly as famous as this podcast, BBC Radio 4's Costing the Earth series focused on retrofit. Now, Peter, welcome to the Workable Podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's so good to have a superstar here in our industry. I would love you to give us a teaser of that series on BBC. That was just one looking at the impact of the built environment, costing the earth covers all facets of sustainability and net zero, etc. But this one was focused on the built environment and the impact of either cost of keeping or demolishing buildings. And the timber square scheme that you mentioned is part of that is a refurbishment or reuse of a 1950s print works that's been kept and then being extended with a steel and CLT hybrid structure on top of that. And so quite a lot of the the other people that are interviewed on the BBC programme are you know, advocating more reuse of the existing building stock. You know, we know that the construction of buildings is probably, over the lifetime of the building, it's probably tenfold the environmental impact of the operational ongoing impacts. And I think you know, for a long time we've focused on the operational carbon emissions, but actually those upfront emissions are enormous by comparison. So it's more important we focus on that nowadays than necessarily just focusing narrowly on the ongoing operational carbon emissions. So it's fair to say when we have the question of about repurposing or new dev, uh, you're voting for the former. In most cases, that's certainly got to be the starting point. I think you know, it won't always stack up and there can be many reasons it would it, you, remodeling wouldn't stack up. But I think we've got to be honest that the starting point, the presumption has to be in favor of and you know, looking at retention as a starting point. And as I said, there can be other reasons that that maybe won't work, but that's got to be an honest, dispassionate starting point in, I think, all cases. And I think there is definitely a move, certainly in Britain, there is a move towards that with local authorities that you have to prove that if you want to take a building down and replace it, you have to go through a methodical, honest, dispassionate process of proving that that is the better option. And in most cases, judged purely on sustainability, that simply won't add up. And may, as I said, there may be other reasons that, that you choose to, but on sustainability, it won't add up. So we clearly will have time to go through all the details of the timber project and, and, and answer probably many questions that people are going to be left with after this podcast. On that BBC series, we'll put a link in the show notes. Can people go there and, and go a little bit more deeper on this? Yes, I think so. And there's quite a few people like Simon Sturgis, who um, is you know, very well known in the architectural community for you know, really progressing very quickly the the measurement of embodied carbon across the construction industry. He's one of the very, very first people to to begin advocating for us, focusing on that. So he talks very eloquently, as do one or two other people as well. Well, that leaves me with a question I think might be obvious to many people, but I want to hear it from you. Why timber? Well, the main reason is just even before you factor in sequestered carbon, so the carbon that's been drawn from the atmosphere during the growing of the trees, even before you factor that in, it's generally lower carbon as a construction material than most other methods that we'd use in contemporary buildings, steel, concrete, etc. So even that as a starting point is, is better. But And there are, div- there are different views on this, but... If you then factor in the sequestered carbon, that has a huge impact, as in 
you know, positive. So you can end up with at least the structural frame of the building perhaps being carbon negative over the life cycle of the trees growing and becoming you know, engineered timber products. Now, there are some opinions that you shouldn't really include sequestered carbon. You can't guarantee who is using that to be accounted for. So there is now a lot of work going on with an organization called Built by Nature who are trying to link up the entire supply chain from sustainable agroforestry through to you know, insurance issues around timber construction. But if we built as much of the building stock as we can from you know, bio-based materials, those can be a carbon removal technology. In fact, during the summer, last summer, the UN actually included timber construction and bio-based materials within their permissible carbon removal technologies. And of course, that's very different from carbon offsets, where you're often simply not emitting an additional ton of carbon. In the case of removals, you're actually removing a ton from the atmosphere. So I think there's a lot to say for the timber. It's also lighter, actually. Why does that matter? I mean, that can matter from transport. You can put more of it on the truck. So you're reducing the amount of transport movements. It means in some cases with reuse, if you're trying to extend buildings, you can sometimes get you know, more floors on the top of them. So, for example, the Timber Square project that we're, we're doing, I think the structure there is about 20-25% lighter than a conventional steel composite structure would have been with concrete in it. And that, that probably enabled us to add about another story. So we're, we're adding about four or five stories on. Which is added value. Which is added value. So let's talk about the timber project in, in Southwark. Can you, can you elaborate? Tell me what's going on there. That one, at the moment, it's, it's just started on site properly. So the enabling works, i.e. The, the demolition that has happened, we're retaining about 85% of the, of the existing structure on site, and that forms about 25% of the overall scheme. So that work's happened. There is a basement that's currently being, being dug, and then we're in the latter stages of procurement for you know, that particular scheme. It's quite tall. It's 15 stories tall at its highest. And so that is a steel primary structure with... CLT planks on the top of that. So the floor deck is formed of CLT. And then there are other schemes that we're beginning to look at, which are full timber, albeit we think that in Britain, there's probably a limit of about nine stories that we can do in full timber and commercial office schemes at the moment. And, um, and when you say in Britain and limit to nine stories, is, is that tied to the fact that, that it's, a, it's a UK regulation? Why is that? I think building in timber at the moment is is more difficult in Britain. I mean, it's particularly difficult in the residential market. And I think that's partly to do with anxiety around fire, which is driven understandably by Grenfell, which wasn't a timber building. But so you more or less can't use timber in the outside skin of a residential building. And so partly driven by insurance in the commercial market at the moment i think it's simply that we don't really have a tradition of building big buildings in timber in britain so probably the biggest barrier in the commercial world is the barriers that have been run up against insurance so it's taking quite a lot of work with a consortia of big developers to try and overcome some of those issues so it can be quite you know fivefold increase in asset insurance which is partly to do with water as well as with, with fire. Now, that doesn't really exist in some other markets. I think you know, big tracts of North, Northern Europe or North America, it's, it's seemingly a lot easier to build in, in timber at the moment. But I think there's a groundswell building in Britain that that will probably be alleviated in the next few years. 
I mean, if, if I'm completely honest in my ignorance and lack of understanding of timber build and if, in, in, when I first found out about this, my first thought was, how can you build a, a wooden structure like that? Surely it would be a fire hazard. But then diving further into it and getting learning more about it, well, it's not as risky as it sounds on the tin. No, there's, you know, there's been a huge amount of testing done, and this is engineered timber. It's much more static. It's much more stable. Fire tests have shown that timber of that scale doesn't really burn it chars, and so it will often what's called self-extinguish over a longer period. And there are risks with other materials as well, you know, steel buckles under extreme heat. So a lot of this is driven not so much by life safety. There are definitely not life safety issues around this. Is the, the insurance issues are more around asset protection. And so at the moment, there are, I think, slightly overstated anxieties about the, the amount of a building that would be damaged, how, it's, how elements of it are replaced. But I think over the next few years, we will get to a point that it becomes easier, that it's more recognized. I mean, I think part of the problem is that there are so few large-scale timber buildings, they don't really have a risk profile yet. It's not that they've got a poor risk profile, it's just they don't have a risk profile because there aren't enough of them. But that, over the next few years, I think that will that will improve. Well, my friend and real estate expert over in Canada, in Kitchener-Waterloo, Canada, is a big fan of the timber projects. Benjamin Bach, I have to give him a shout-out here. But I want to segue from the timber and talk about MIPM for a second. We're here. It's your first time. What sort of conversations or expectations have you had? Who are you talking to? I think a lot of the, the conversations we've been having are with either London, largely London-based developers and people, you know, design teams that support those. You know, the ESG agenda has you know, exploded in the last few years. And I think from about 2019 onwards, the the rate of increase has been phenomenal. And I think there's almost a there's almost a sustainability arms race happening amongst commercial development. And I think that's where it's happening most quickly at the moment. One of the things I'm most excited about at the moment is there's a lot of work going on led by David Partridge from Related Argent looking at developing a net zero carbon building standard for the UK. And that's all of the big institutions, the RIBA, UK Green Building Council, SIBSI, structural engineers, et cetera, et cetera, coming together and saying there isn't a clear definition of what constitutes net zero carbon. Lots of There are loads of net zero carbons at the moment, plural. It's sort of whatever you define it as being yourself. So this is an attempt to, across sectors, so you know, commercial, cultural, residential, logistics, et cetera, to try and define minimum standards of performance for operational carbon and for embodied carbon. And I think that will come out over a series of publications over the course of this year. And that, that I think is going to be really significant when we've got a singular definition of what constitutes net zero carbon. Well, one of our alumni of the Workable podcast, Basil Demarudis from Four Partnership. Oh, uh, I know Basil very well, actually. He's a very, very, very interesting, very committed character. Absolutely. And, and, and four delivered the first net zero building in, in Scotland, up in Glasgow. Yeah, uh, kind of works. Yeah. I think that's a really, really clever building. They're doing something, unfortunately, not with us at the moment, but with at Tower Bridge Court, which is a very good scheme. So they're, they're one of the really enlightened, good developers in London. Surely he has to be with Mr. Partridge to, uh, to have conversations around this to advance this standard. 
Yes, I think Basil is involved as a, a I think a trustee of the UK Green Building Council. Excellent. So I Excellent. think he was involved in that process. Yeah, it's 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 a big agenda here. Obviously at MIPM, you're having these conversations. So I'm glad that that multiple smart people in this industry are working on creating a standard, and we have some transparency around it. I know Lizette Van Dorn from ULI, who I've mentioned many times on, on this season. She's also had her own episode. Has a call for collaboration as we move this ESG agenda forward. It's too much work done in silos, too many people being competitive in her words, and she's focused on bringing people to the table. So it's good to hear this initiative. Yeah, no, and I completely endorse that view. I think that that has been the case. And certainly things like the net zero carbon building standard are really trying to break that down, gathering data, sharing that data. And we need more honest use of dispassionate data to move away from sustainability as superlatives to you know, sustainability as you know, fairly hardcore numbers at, at one level. That that might be a good setup for this next question. And uh, I guess we we see Office as a product historically moving and evolving to become a more of a dynamic service. How do you see that happening? How, what what's happening in your world for that? I think there's probably several interesting facets to that. I mean, I just said something about sustainability needing to have hardcore numbers to it and at at one level i think that's absolutely imperative but at another we've i think one of the really exciting things is as we get with more um, biogenic materials more recycled or reused materials actually what we are getting is just buildings that are more characterful i think they're just much much more pleasant buildings and certainly we had during the you know the 90s and periods of like that where we just had you know football fields of white suspended ceilings. I mean, office buildings were incredibly anodyne in their interiors. Big white box. Big white boxes. And we're, you know, we're just nowhere near that now. You know, they're so far apart. And once you begin layering on top, you reuse buildings, often buildings that are a bit bashed, bashed around. But what I think a few years ago would have probably been considered imperfections are now considered character. And we're getting just a much more materially richer environment with more links to nature and actually one level just nicer buildings more humane buildings and that's got to be part of buildings as a service as well and certainly in larger cities definitely london new york where people are commuting big distances actually there's got to be a reason to come into the office if you can sit there at home without commuting why come in so in some respects in fact this is one thing that basil has has said before is yeah, that the to some extent the the office has to be nicer than your house. Leaseman data shows that the the average office is not as nice as the average house. No, and so they're getting quite domestic in scale and intimacy, and I think having that range of spaces as well. I mean, what do we use the office for? And that, that probably dependent on organisations, dependent on how often they're in the office. I'm yeah, certainly in our own case, we we're noticing that you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday hump you know mondays and fridays are quite concentrated days you know maybe there's more you know we have probably more desks than we need most days but we have nowhere near enough collaboration space with people bumping into each other meeting space so i think that's that's altering stuff how you can see how buildings are actually used by people well that is the macro trend that that we see as well and i think that 
midweek mountain, as my friend Chris Early likes to say. Oh, an, I've never heard that term, but that's a really midweek nice mountain, term. Yeah. or some people call it twats. The TWT. Yeah, I've heard that one as well. <laughs> it's a bit rude, but you know, I think as companies embrace this, 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 these changes. Since we're talking ESG again, let's pop over to Adam Gadiali, Delta Q's UK director. Adam, the Workbolt audience is made up of office real estate professionals spanning 50 countries. Tell us a little bit about your international expansion plans for Delta Q and why that's important for office buildings. Reducing energy consumption is a major challenge for real estate organizations, especially since the sector is responsible for nearly 30% of the European Union's carbon emissions. Delta Q is a purpose-driven organization and we partner with the largest real estate companies in the world to fight climate change and to help our customers towards net zero carbon with our triple strategy. This is what we like to call Map Plan Act. Thank you, Adam. More on Delta Q's triple strategy later in the show. I'm seeing another trend as lease events occur. I think we'll see more of this and nobody quite knows how it's going to go just yet, but I think it'll unfold very soon. But I guess the question that I have is if it is seen to be more sustainable, if it's proven to be more sustainable for a company to shrink their core footprint and increase the take up of flex as their business expands and contracts, then how does that change how buildings are designed? That's a very good question. I don't know how much it does change how buildings are designed, actually. You know, some of the, as long as they're adaptable. I mean, what we what we can't have is buildings that are highly bespoke. Those are the ones that always seem to come unstuck. And, you know, you've only to look at, you know, I mean, the wonderful Georgian Terrace houses in central London. I mean, they've been all sorts, homes, offices, hospitals, schools, and they just managed to keep chugging away. Not much about the structure has changed, but the, the way in which they're inhabited changes. And so, yeah, that old mantra of long life, loose fit, we need buildings of that ilk. And that generally is what we, you know, the, the office world is quite good at, at providing. But we need long life, loose fit with character and buildings that can be inhabited and re-inhabited. I mean, we, we like to think of it as a container and content and being quite deliberate about the difference between those. And that one is the container is earnest and enduring and built to last. That's where most of your upfront carbon is, but that you don't translate those same qualities through into the contents and the way you inhabit it. That can be much more fleeting and maybe even casual and changing rapidly over time. And so I think the interplay between those, like St. Jerome in his study, you know, uh, neo-Gothic church with a very intimate joinery within it. And I think those playing on the permanent, the, the fleeting, almost the monumental or the enduring and the much more intimate, I think there's a really interesting interplay between those. It is very interesting. And it kind of Reminds me of a conversation I had on this podcast with Andy Pyle from KPMG. Not about this, though, but about how buildings are, are valued and intrinsic value of, of the building and then the additional revenue that service and hospitality and, and brings into uh, and it gets layered on top of it. And I, I bring that up bec- and why you make this conversation makes me think of that is because if we're saying that companies are going to go shrink their footprints and go more in the flex, well, it almost makes me wonder if the 
valuation methodology. Appreciate this isn't your expertise. I'm just rambling here, probably or riffing, but the the value of the building itself, what you're delivering and helping plan is one thing, and then the use and I'll call it the software, the content, the programming, the people, the community, how, how, how that gets layered on top is another layer of value. So I just, I just wonder if, you know, for everyone listening, I'm wondering if there's opinions out there on if there's an interplay there. I don't know. I think one of the really significant changes we've seen over the last few years has just been how the, the amount of space at the sort of base of buildings has you know, the foyer, what would have been the foyer at one point, you know, those are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and they're becoming almost like hospitality spaces. And so that maybe as you move up the building, your core office space is getting smaller and smaller, but much, much more of your you know, work is being done in these spaces, which are much more about collaboration or meeting or things of that. Age. And I think there's also an interesting thing around how do you how do you increase the time over which those are used? And an interesting analogy that, that we, we do quite a lot of cultural work as well on theatres and libraries. And there's a really interesting one in, in Chester that we were working on where it succeeded in layering the libraries, restaurant, cafe, theatre, theatre foyer, sort of on top of one another. And each was supporting the other. So there's a, you know, the central space probably changes character dramatically during the course of a day. And it goes from being you know, a cafe with people having, you know, coffee in the morning to ultimately the restaurant and bar of a theatre and the library space is also intermingled. And you end up by that sort of layering and blending. Uh, you probably couldn't have justified a cafe of that scale just for a library. You couldn't have justified a foyer of that scale for a, for a theatre. But as soon as you're blending those together with cinemas, libraries, theatres, etc., you can not only have more space dedicated to interaction, but you're getting more vibrancy throughout the course of the day. And I think there's, there's, there are some interesting things coming in that, that, in that sort of space with things like um, cinemas being in the base of buildings and rather than companies having to build, you know, have auditoria fitted out in, in their office space, you simply use cinemas as auditoria during the day and then they become cinemas in the evening or large meeting spaces, etc. So I think there's a lot more synergy in that sort of sense between how things are used at the base of buildings and perhaps you're having actually less space on the, you know, in the upper portion of the building. I think the, your, your analogy with the libraries and cinemas is, is on point in the mention about the core office shrinking but having more communal space. Citizen M hotels, that's their entire model. They took the hotel model and they have, they have really small rooms because the target customer, the demographic of their customers are not spending time in their bedrooms except to sleep. They actually want to be social. They're out in the communal areas, having their food, drinks, socializing, or they're out in the city around them. I mean, that is a really interesting model, isn't it? When you go back to how hotels used to be and they massive rooms with massive wardrobes that you don't ever put anything in and you do wonder why, why is all of this here? It's for sleeping in. And as you say, then it's all of the activity outside of it that's actually while you're there. Exactly. Well, I think that's a good one for everyone to, to ponder. 
I want to end on a lighter note here. I was going to ask what your favorite restaurant in Cannes was, but this is your first time to Mipham. So instead, what I'll ask though is we both live in London and I'm always looking for great places to eat. So I'm curious what your favorite restaurant in London is. I've probably got a favorite one and a, a really interesting one at the moment. I think my favorite one is probably Morrow on Exmouth Market. It's been there for years. Yep. It just continually keeps doing just really enjoyable. I haven't of, been to Exmouth Market since last of, summer. Yeah, yeah, sort of Spanish, Moroccan yeah, yeah. type stuff. But a really interesting one at the moment is Silo in Hackney Wick that is a self-start circular, entirely circular restaurant that doesn't have a waste bin. And it's kind of difficult to describe as a particular sort of type of food because you can't compare it to other stuff that you've you've tried it's a lot of fermentation you know all of the waste is used in the composting they're very very careful about their sourcing so it's seasonal if there is any meat on the menu which there very often isn't it'll be a byproduct or uh, you know they, they're not animals that have reared for for eating they'll be from from another source and so it, it's very, you know, be from deer culls or something of that ilk. So it's very seasonal and, you know, about as sustainable as restaurant food can be. So it's, it's really worth checking out. And you can go and they, they either, they give you the choice of having every time something comes, if you have the, the tasting menu that they, they explain, you know, why each individual piece is, is the way that it is. Or you can elect to not have all of the information that's coming. It's, I think it's most interesting to have the information, but I can... I can understand people that just want to enjoy some good food. Well, there you go. If you live in London, go to Silo in Hackney Wick. If you're visiting London, now you know where to go. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Peter, for coming on and sharing your, your insights with us. It's been a pleasure. Yep. Thanks for having us. And thank you for listening. Until next time, take care of yourself. Before we close this episode out, a final update from Adam Gadiali on Delta Q's triple strategy. As I mentioned earlier, everything we do needs to help the commercial real estate sector drastically reduce its carbon emissions. That's our purpose. We start with connecting building portfolios with our AI solution and commit ourselves to clear results, which include CO2 and energy reduction, operational efficiency and comfort optimization. Firstly, in order to reduce the building's energy consumption, we deploy our technology across building portfolios. We do this by mapping the building through a digital diagnosis or creating a digital twin of the building. This also includes precise local weather forecast and occupancy data. Secondly, through planning, which is where we conduct a physical diagnosis of the building with our HVAC and BMS specialists to ensure that the availability of data is as closely aligned with reality. From there, we identify building and system anomalies, build a roadmap towards savings, and advise on the carbon return of retrofit investments. Thirdly, by taking action. This is where we take both digital and physical data and automate repetitive savings through our AI steering of the HVAC systems. That's our triple strategy. There you go. What an important purpose. Be sure to visit DeltaQ.io to learn more and listen to episode eight this season where I got to sit down with Delta Q's CEO, Khadija Nadia at MIPUM for a deeper dive into their purpose of helping the real estate sector on the road to zero. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and remember, fortune favors the bold. Drum roll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com.